Marguerite Kutzia is an artist, anthropologist, and futurist based in Cape Town, South Africa. After getting her postgraduate diploma in future studies at the University of Stellenbosch Business School, she became an emerging fellow at the Association of Professional Futurists and started her own company, Omniology, in 2019, dedicated to breaking the barriers of research and strategy by merging anthropology, futures, marketing, and design. As she puts it, anthropology provides me with multiple perspectives to understand where we come from, while future studies enables me to anticipate and shape where we are going. Marguerite has worked as a consultant to a wide range of South African businesses and international brands, among them Royal Canine, Vodacom, Vodafone, and Santander Bank. I spoke to her back in March. Welcome to the podcast, Marguerite. Great to have you today. You came to my attention via an article called COVID-19 and the Language of War, uh, which was written by Chris Arning, a semiotician who I interviewed a few months back. His article referenced two competing metaphors which you proposed, utilizing in discussions over responses to the pandemic. So it was pandemic as war versus pandemic as river. And I think many of us have already heard some discussion around pandemic as war. Why is it always the virus is the enemy and we're in shutdown or lockdown and, and uh, we're citizens, we have to fight it. And I found it really interesting already looking at that piece that you proposed this duality or this alternate metaphor, let's say, uh, with the citizens as explorers following a path in unknown terrain or uncertain terrain. They need a map and it's healing as a journey. So in a new piece you published a few weeks ago in the Journal of Future Studies, you identified other competing pandemic metaphors applicable to different areas of society, such as the technological realm, the political realm. Could you give an overview of the other areas of society you touched on in your piece and the competing metaphors you presented for each? Yes. So I guess just to take it sort of back to the beginning, whenever I conduct any kind of research I generally start with a steep analysis. Um, so for those who are not familiar, steep stands for social, technological, economic, environmental, and political realms. Essentially, I would ask questions in each of these spaces relating to the topic that I am researching, and then look at how do these forces and conditions of change interact with one another. So I did the same thing for this journal piece. Um, it started off with the war and river metaphor, because that was just what I was seeing online, how people were talking about the virus. And I was curious to see if there were any other kind of metaphors or stories that were being told. So it's kind of just based on the way that we see the world influences how we behave in the world. And the language that we use changes how we experience a situation and how do we respond to a problem that we're facing. Um, so each of the metaphors in this article create different realities and challenges and opportunities. So in the social realm, the dominant narrative is of a plague, which conveys, you know, suffering and contamination of the body and people go into survival mode trying to contain the spread of this disease. It also has, you know, connotations of being in an apocalypse or, you know, just fearing what could contaminate you. The emerging idea, however, in the social realm was more around the pandemic as an opportunity for a revolution or almost a renaissance, so to revive or renew our world. And the virus in this metaphor then becomes a turning point 
So it creates a sense of empowerment and possibility rather than fear and punishment. Um, in the technological realm, the virus is almost a glitch in the matrix, if you want to call it that. It is as if we could simply reboot the system and things will just go back to whatever normal was or might be. Um, alternatively, the pandemic is a portal to another world. Um, so we find ourselves in this in-between space where we can co-create our futures with the tools that we have available to us. And this idea specifically came from Arundhati Roy. She wrote about the pandemic from the perspective of India. Um, really fascinating way that she told the story. In the economic realm, the pandemic is compared to a storm so something that is unpredictable and destructive. So in a storm, we tend to react before we can you know, think things through. Uh, we turn to leaders as if they are captains who will navigate us to safety. But another way of looking at this in the economic realm is the future as your dance partner. So thinking about the pandemic as a kind of dance routine. So it's a give and take relationship that requires you to collaborate and adapt, and I guess also be flexible. In the environmental realm, uh, the dominant narrative here was the pandemic as a disaster, usually in the sense that it was brought about by human interference. So in this disaster situation, we become victims or survivors or volunteers. And the main focus is to just minimize the damage and establish some kind of control. But an, a powerful alternative to this metaphor is the river that you mentioned. So in this situation, people become explorers of this uncharted territory. They develop a map to give them some kind of direction and they can anticipate some of the obstacles um, and healing then becomes this journey through this territory. It's a way of dealing with the grief of, of course, losing lives and our previous security, is that right? What's the journey of healing or what's the healing journey? Yeah, so I think if you just imagine a river, you can see that the river would have varying turbulent parts or um, sections that are calm and clear. There might be rapids, uh, there could be bends in the river, there could be different networks that you know, break off from the, the mainstream. Um, so if you view healing in this way, it's, it's a process. It's not something that you actively are thinking about the end destination, but you are going through this process of dealing with the circumstances, um, dealing with the consequences of, you know, how you handle the situation and the other people who are there with you, going on this journey with you, even if you are on it alone, um, you have certain tools and skills and capabilities to help you through it. Right, which certainly in the environmental realm we're going to need and we still need. Yes. And the last, the last realm was um, political. So this is where the, the other metaphor came in that you mentioned, um, the pandemic as a war. So in this narrative, the virus then obviously becomes our enemy. It's a common threat to human life. And essentially we are trying to eliminate it. The problem with this, though, is we speak about citizens as if they are soldiers and our healthcare workers become heroes who ultimately either need to sacrifice their own health or even their lives to protect us. And alternatively to this pandemic as a war, you could see it as a game of chess. So the virus might then 
present you with this challenge and you need to apply logic and strategy and take risks and plan ahead and improve your skill. What I find interesting about each of these is the dominant narrative always seems somewhat static to me, whereas the emerging narrative has a sense of possibility, flexibility, movement in it. Is that also part of the thought process that goes into creating these? Or is it just a natural thing that what you're looking at is the dominant narrative has already been formed, so it's more solid in a way? Yeah, I mean, I guess um, people draw on what they know. It's this idea of our expectations are based on what we are exposed to and what we've been conditioned to believe or how we think. So a lot of the dominant narratives tend to draw on military style responses and language. Um, Even in the futures space, if you look at the different terms that people use, like agility and strategy and those kind of things, it's things that you can trace back to military roots. So it, it is quite problematic when, you know, we're using these discourses of destruction and trying to overcome something, even if it means losing your life or harming someone along the way, a better alternative would be to encourage a sense of working together and going through this process of change with others. Right. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. I wanted to come back to that again with the environmental realm, because I realized talking about the pandemic as a national disaster, not just well, an environmental disaster in the sense that nature gets out of control. So that's, of course, why it's we're looking at the environmental realm and seeing it as a disaster or the river option. And so disaster management is necessary, as you write, but there's this journey of healing following the experience of loss, pain, and grief. And then you give this example of how they responded in New Zealand. And maybe you want to speak to that since... I feel like that connects with what you were just talking about. Yeah, so um, New Zealand has been given as an example of almost collective leadership in which their leader turns to others and incorporates other perspectives in her decision-making rather than the leader being this hierarchical figure who makes the decisions for everyone below as if it, you know, it's not a collaborative process or that, you know, there's only one right way of doing things. So New Zealand really has demonstrated an alternative. I think, again, it comes back to the way that leaders also communicate or the language that they use or the techniques in this kind of disaster management. A lot of the times it comes down to conquering something or containing the spread of disease rather than looking at How else might we view this and transform from it? Right, and it puts her message, puts the power into the individuals at the same time that it puts the power into the collective and the responsibility by saying, be strong, be kind. It's sort of an internal posture that she's giving people. And it gives us all the responsibility Um, We all have a role to play. It's not just, you know, one person making the decisions and others dealing with the consequences. Exactly. So I'd love to know why the piece is called Ancestors of the Future, the Poetry and Potency of Language. That is a (laughs) very good question. Um, I think if you unpack it, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, You know, if you start going down the linguistic rabbit hole, um, there's a lot to say about that. And of course, poetry and art 
so fluid and enigmatic. But the short answer is it came from how the future is treated as almost this distant time and place. And it is easy to forget that the past and present and future are all entangled and interconnected. You know, no one and nothing exists in isolation. And this idea of being an ancestor of the future, it's not new. I've seen it come up in uh, psychology papers and philosophy and anthropology, but it was only when I heard it discussed in the context of decolonizing futures that I really took notice of this term. There's someone by the name of um, Pupul Bisht. She is a multidisciplinary futurist and um, founder of Decolonizing Futures Initiative. It is uh, when I heard her speak on futures that matter and what is the influence of storytelling and this need for inclusivity and foresight that really is lacking globally, it really hit home. So her work really makes room for the marginalized voices and um, gives you this alternative understanding of the world, uh, which was really inspiring. And I guess that's what inspired the title of this piece, just looking at the power of language and shaping how we not only view the world, but how do we experience it and act in the world? How is it that through our thoughts and words um, and actions that we shape the world around us? This comes back to this technique you used called causal layered analysis or CLA or the iceberg model. You use the technique to arrive at these fascinating juxtapositions and there's layers to this. That's why it's called causal layered analysis. And one of the layers is myth and metaphor. And it's perhaps the most surprising to find in this very academic way of analyzing and looking at the future. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that specific layer. Sure. So just roughly causal layered analysis is a sense-making tool that explores the different narratives that people use to make sense of the world. It's a strategic planning technique that uh, Sohail Inayatullah developed. Um, similar to the iceberg model, where if you imagine an iceberg, you would see only the top of it sticking above the water, but the majority of it is underwater that you cannot see. In a similar way, a problem tends to only be visible on the surface, you know, the tip of the iceberg, but down below lies a hidden mass that you need to uncover. So to understand the CLA model, you can imagine a triangle divided into four levels. Uh, so the first layer is the litany at the very top. And this is the observed or obvious problem. And um, just below that, you've got your systemic causes or the driving forces that create the conditions for this problem to exist. And then the third level is your the way that people talk about the problem or the assumptions that people have or the worldviews that support the creation of this problem. And then the foundation layer is your myth and metaphor. So this is often linked to a long history. It has its emotive dimensions. It's just um, that is where it is all rooted in. Exactly. And that's, that's why I thought this is a good point to bring it in because when you talk about ancestors of the future, you're talking about the stories that we've been telling ourselves that have built themselves into our language and our metaphors about, for example, you know, we have to fight illness, we have to fight a virus that comes from some deep place 
in our history on this planet. And that has become built into our myth and metaphor. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes, definitely. So I can maybe give an example where I have applied this in a similar scenario. So the way that I use the CLA model is probably not the right way of doing so, but um, I would normally start with a metaphor. So at the very foundation, I would identify what is the dominant story that is being told about a problem. Then I would go to the very top and work my way down the triangle. So once I've got the metaphor, I would look at, okay, what is the obvious problem that we see reported on in the media that people are talking about? It's just general knowledge. For example, let's say the rate at which women in South Africa are being killed has been compared to countries at war. So statistically, women are dying at the same rate as people in war. Um, If you then look at the second level of this problem of gender-based violence, uh, you could see that women are victims of crime um, and violence and are often told in response to this to monitor their own behavior as if it is their fault for maybe provoking um, an attack on them or to have pain inflicted on them because of how they present themselves or how they behave and so on. Um, Whereas men are generally not held accountable for their actions. And yeah, the narrative tends to just focus on the woman's role in the situation. If you look at the driving forces behind that, it's, I guess, you know, women operating in a generally man's world, they're not always afforded the same privileges or opportunities that men might have, such as basic things like safety or even in some cases, power or economic opportunities. And then if you look at the worldview that is underpinning these driving forces, it's this discourse about how women are often in many parts of the world assumed to be inferior, whether it's biologically, intellectually, or in other ways, and men are often favored or considered superior. So then at the very foundation of this is the myth where we often hear the phrase, you know, boys will be boys. And this encourages the suppression of the feminine in men themselves, but also the oppression of difference. So the masculine is celebrated, encouraged, and uses a standard against which people are measured. So that's how you would then unpack that problem going down. But now you, you, I mean, this is very overwhelming, and how do you even begin to respond to this? So then you work your way back up the triangle, but you flip the narrative. So you make it something more empowered or positive or just change your perspective or the angle from which you're viewing this. So if you're starting at the bottom, you might say, you know, if progress is the result of interdependent actors, we then need to collaborate. And this will lead to the overall development of humanity. And then there's this chain reaction to the other levels where interdependent actors are all facilitators of change, they're uh, empowered co-creators of equality. This also then removes the responsibility of women to kind of govern themselves um, and shares that responsibility amongst government, institutions, citizens, everyone. So everyone's involved in, in creating this transformative change. And then finally, at the very top, you would say, we need to grasp this idea that we are different, but we are also equal. So we need to change the way we see the problem so that we can see new ways of responding to it. It's really interesting because I see now how that reflects on the other 
dominant narrative versus emerging narrative that you described, this, this staticness that I sent is sensed in the dominant narratives is it feels like a one-way street, like this is how things are. And by making it an interdependent relationship where we're all responsible for what's <laughs> happening, then the more dynamism comes into the problem-solving process. Yes, exactly. Um, I'd love to talk about another recent publication of yours for the South African advertising and marketing news site, Mark Lives, where you posited a new acronym to replace the well-known acronyms, VUCA, uh, a sense-making framework uh, that I think most of our listeners will be familiar with, and TUNA, which is a lesser-known management tool. I can quickly summarize what it stands for. VUCA stands for volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And TUNA, which is a scenario-based management tool used to reframe mental models and to initiate strategic conversations, stands for turbulent, uncertain, novel, and ambiguous. So you've proposed a completely new acronym, and could you tell us what it stands for? It's DELA, D-E-L-A, and how you arrived at it. So towards the beginning of the year in, well, 2020, when we first entered lockdown, I guess I did what many do in isolation, which is look inward and reflect on your role in this bigger thing called life. <laughs> so I was thinking about what could I possibly do to create some kind of meaningful contribution during this time, um, during the chaos. At the same time, it had also not been that long since my childhood hero passed away in 2019. His name is Johnny Clegg. Uh, he was a South African anthropologist and musician. Um, and I, I, I genuinely just missed his wisdom during the pandemic. He was someone who defied apartheid laws to bring together this fragmented and frightened nation. We were apparently on the brink of civil war in the 80s. And I, growing up in the 90s, I wanted to be like him. Uh, he was this bridge builder between worlds. And it was by immersing himself in Zulu music and performance and language and stories from a very young age that he became a icon of peace for many South Africans. Um, so while I was trying to make sense of this pandemic, randomly the song of his came to mind, which is called Dela. Um, I recall uh, once in a radio interview, he had explained uh, where the inspiration of the song came from. Apparently it was, you know, this joy that you feel when you see beauty in even the bleakest of times. So I think the example he gave was of a migrant worker in Johannesburg, uh, which as you know, is like a concrete jungle. And there's not much beauty to people who don't know it well or don't come from there. But if you imagine this migrant worker walking through the inner city and then he comes across this yellow flower um, that grows through the crack in the concrete and he just smiles to himself. Um, it's just a little reminder that there is still beauty amongst the chaos and coldness. And that is actually what got me thinking about writing this random LinkedIn post, which basically called for a shift in perspective and understanding and worldview and thinking about how could we look at the pandemic from an African vantage point? Um, what could the rest of the world learn from African knowledge systems 
Um, it just felt like something that was missing in the conversation that was being had. So in, in this LinkedIn post, I suggested Dela as an alternative to Vukantuna, as you mentioned. And what was interesting is if you then take on this perspective of looking at things from an African point of view, and in my case, it was specifically from the Zulu language, uh, Vuka in Zulu means to wake up or to have an awakening, and Tuna means a grave or a tomb. Um, so quite strange looking at what they meant. But um, Dela then, as an alternative, stood for dynamic, emergent, liminal, and anthropocentric. So this idea that our world is constantly changing, it's in a process of being and becoming, um, it's in between and transitioning. And as you know, we're in this time in which humanity has the biggest impact on the planet, but we also have this focus on humans and being human or life-centered. And the Zulu meaning of Dela is quite poetic. I like that it has a paradoxical definition. So on the one hand, Dela means to be satisfied or to have had enough. And on the other hand, it means to abandon or to give up or to sacrifice. So I, I like that just the way it captured the feeling of being in a pandemic. To be satisfied in the sense of a certain kind of contentment in the stillness, I'm guessing. I mean, subjectively, that's how it feels to me. Or this sense of we've reached a, maybe a better way to put it. It's like the, the water cup is full to the brim. Definitely. There's a sense of wholeness or completeness and acceptance and realizing that, you know, we're constantly striving for better, faster, more. Sometimes we just need to pause and realize that we've already accomplished so much and we have so much and we need to start, you know, thinking about what sacrifices can we make or what will our actions contribute to the bigger picture. Right. Which we're certainly at that point now and it will be unfolding in the months and probably also years to come as we try to find our way through this along this river. So you made an interesting conclusion in your article where you say, just as the cage bird sings in order to cope, many employees in home office are performing beyond expectation, whether it's to prove their worth to their employer or to feel safe within the confines of certainty as the world around them unravels. I personally resonated a lot with this, the second one, this feeling of doing something that I could contain and understand to have a sense of control in this larger chaos. First of all, I'm curious why you brought what the process was in your mind to bring Vandela to, to looking at work. Was it a reflection on your own situation or how did that come about? I guess the, the way I see Della being used, it's intended to just provoke a series of questions just to have you think about a situation or a challenge or an opportunity or a problem from different angles. I could possibly give an example that I used in this article because the, the platform is targeted at advertising and marketing professionals. Um, I had to phrase it in that way and help them think about the problems that they might be experiencing. So to begin with, you would identify a problem either in your personal or professional life and then work through each of the letters in Dela. So the example I used was the problem that companies are experiencing, you know, they're looking to employ so-called unicorns. 
these individuals who seem to be rare, <laughs> they have a combination of skills that um, are perhaps unique. And essentially they can do the work of several people, but often they don't get paid beyond that. They get paid for one, one person's job. So if you start with dynamic, so the letter D, we would ask the question, what is changing? What we're looking for here is a trend or observation that helps you explain why the problem is happening. So if we look at the unicorn example, what is changing in the world of work is that we operate in an increasingly complex and interconnected world. And this requires us to be able to adapt to change quite quickly and in sometimes very complex ways. Um, if you then move to E, emergent. So the question you would ask here is what is old and what is new when thinking about this challenge? You would consider the problem in terms of what this situation might have looked like in the past and what it could look like in, in the future. So for example, the linear process of moving from apprenticeship to journeyman to master in the past has largely fallen away. Individuals, you know, they, they don't have this opportunity to always enter into a workplace and learn from someone and progress and move up in, in the organization. A lot of the times they have to apply for the position that they want to enter into, and then often you get stuck there. If we look at L, liminal, so the question you would ask here is what feels familiar and what seems strange? You would ideally identify a universal human truth, so something that anyone anywhere in the world can relate to at any point in history, which sounds great, but it's very difficult to do sometimes. You just have to consider what are the things that make us human and which one of those human traits or conditions relate to the problem you're looking at. So in this example of the unicorn, you could say something that we all relate to is that we move through life stages and each of the life stages, whatever they might be, they come with lessons and limitations, their own set of uncertainties and possibilities of change. So it's just a broad thing that people can relate to and understand. And then finally, the, the A is for anthropocentric. So the question we ask is, what is the relationship between the internal and external, as well as the individual and collective? You would think about how could this problem be experienced by different people in different contexts? So it's essentially the cultural and individual manifestation of the human condition. Um, in this example, you would say that this um, cultural truth or individual truth would be everybody wants a sense of purpose and belonging, and this leads to fulfillment, and this is often accomplished through the work that you do. So I guess once you've got this broad picture of unpacking the problem, you can then distill it by asking yourself the two questions which relate to Della's Zulu definition. So on the one hand, you would look at what are you satisfied with and therefore you're going to hold on to going forward. And on the other hand, uh, what are you willing to sacrifice or what are the things we need, need to let go of to resolve this problem? I see. I didn't realize that actually with the chart, that's where that duality comes from. It comes from the Zulu definition. That's wonderful that you built that right yeah. in. Yeah, so analysis. I mean, yeah. with, with the unicorn example, you would then say we need to let go of this 
need for outdated metrics and working within limitations and rather hold on to this idea of openness and trust and identity and belonging? How do you create the conditions for um, people to have the power to make choices and to learn from one another rather than trying to control them and guide them in a, a specific direction that you feel is, is best for them? So um, now that I understand more fully how this, how this data can be applied, um, I'm so curious, first of all, how have people been responding to this in your community specifically? Have you talked to any as people of Zulu descent about it? Um, what is their feedback? So I'm, I'm so excited because I've got this group of friends. We met uh, during our Future Studies program in 2019. We're looking at how can we develop a South African futures method. So definitely something to look out for. It's drawing on different concepts uh, specifically from our history and different ways in which South African leaders have uh, you know made decisions or thought about the future um, so that's quite exciting um, and then globally what was interesting is that since I think I posted this around April in 2020 and um, I saw recently that the post had been viewed like 5,000 times and it was shared by um, Dave Snowden, who is renowned for his um, ideas about complexity and sense making and knowledge management. So that in itself has just sparked so many conversations and calls and collaborations from around the world. The first one was for a Spanish bank that was interested in looking at singlehood and we used Dela to just unpack the different narratives and um, possible ways of understanding it. Then there was also this professor in Brazil who wanted to teach his project management students the DELA model as an alternative to VUCA, just to have, have a more empowered and positive way of approaching business problems and business contexts. And then just generally, it's been so interesting having people share what DELA means in their own language. So I think it was in Portuguese, DELA means hers. So when you say something belongs to her, and then there's also a translation of share and yeah, it was all sorts of interesting uses of the word. Great. So I hope that um, you keep getting feedback and, and that it and uh, people taking it on because I find it really refreshing. So for last year's Berlin School Can Creative Leaders program, we looked at the premise that data is a means to the truth, yet it's still highly ambiguous. And that even though we have so much data coming in and everything is supposedly data-driven, without creativity, the data simply stalls because it has no, nowhere to go, no story. And I thought there was an interesting overlap with your work. As you state on your website, the industry is oversaturated with researchers, confining consumers to outdated demographics, collecting surface level and predictable information, and applying undifferentiated methods and perspectives to short-term solutions. And you write, it is through a deep understanding of people, their behavior, needs, worldviews, that businesses, brands, and agencies are able to connect with their consumers in meaningful ways and to deliver innovative solutions that make an impact in the world. So could you give some examples of how you've done this for your clients and what the outcomes were? I want to talk about this topic of truth and storytelling. It's fascinating. Um, there's this research technique in anthropology called triangulation. So basically you take 
three sources of data or theories or methods and then you you look at how do they intersect or how do they interact and what this does is create some element of credibility and validity um, for your findings. So funny enough, I did just that when um, I was preparing for this conversation with Sohel Inayatullah, who, as you know, developed CLA. And the something around truth came up in the context of tragedy of history and um, the role that truth plays or how is truth communicated or understood. And what I did is I looked at different theories of truth um, and knowledge production specifically, works by Foucault, Trio, and Cohen. And what emerged from this idea was you've got three types of truth. So you've got the truth, a truth, and a claim to truth, which in other words is basically what happened, so the factual account, uh, what is said to have happened, and what is understood to have happened. And if you just look at data from these lenses, everything has a story and everything has value. And I guess when it comes to the work that I do, it helps to understand, you know, that anthropology explores what makes us human and future studies contemplates where humanity is heading in relation to where we came from. So everything I do, I try to bring these two worlds together. Since you mentioned Suhai Inayatula, I really enjoyed the conclusion to your piece, Ancestors of the Future, which was a quote, uh, begins with a quote from a publication of his. He writes, the main point is that narrative, how we describe the world, structures our possibilities, what options we can see, what is possible for us to create. And I think this is quite useful for creative business leaders, such as those at the Berlin School, as a way of approaching their leadership role and providing these metaphors for their organization. So framing things, I'm sure they learn about this in their MBA more than I can possibly explain here, but I, I just find that an appropriate link back to why I'm speaking with you today as a futurist, not just in terms of someone that uh, someone working with brands would consult to try and understand what upcoming trends are, but uh, a person, a really important fresh view on the status quo, on looking at, you know, how are we framing reality and is there where it comes from, as you've described, and, and where there's this space for a new dynamic to enter. So I think um, if I could just say it briefly, it would be this idea that the way we see the world influences the way we behave and experience the world. And the way that we see a problem determines the way that we respond to it. So I guess the challenge for people listening is just if you feel stuck or don't know how to react or have no clue where to begin, just try and see things from different angles and see what develops from there. So I'd love it if you could explain what your relationship is as a white South African to the Zulu language. I can maybe give a little bit of context uh, where that, that connection came from. So I was really born in Durban, KwaZulu-Natal, but I didn't grow up there. I grew up in Johannesburg. And Joburg has a very tortured history, if I can put it like that. I don't know if you're familiar with the migrant hostels that are set up 
um, across both Johannesburg and Durban, but specifically in Johannesburg, these hostels were established as part of the migrant labor system during apartheid. So what happened is people of color were expected to work in the city, but they weren't allowed to live there. Um, they would also require passes in order to move between the city and between the city and, and rural areas. So these hostels were created for those men who came to work on the mines or um, in, in different forms of labor in the city where they, they now had to have access to the space without actually being part of it permanently. So these, these hostels, it, it's just fascinating how they changed over time. Um, so for example, there's a, a traditional market, I guess you could call it that, close to one of the hostels called Mai Mai. And what makes Mai Mai so interesting is that it was originally built as stables for horses in the 1920s, back in the day when, you know, there were no cars and people actually used horse carts. But as these hostels were developed and the city became more urbanized, the market itself, it transformed from the stables into what it is now. So you've got all these traditional healers and shopkeepers and craftsmen and musicians who come and gather in this market space. So it became almost this little safe haven uh, for Zulu identity, language, music, performance to play out in the city outside of, of its origins in KwaZulu-Natal. And this is where I tended to spend some of my time while I was uh, in high school or, you know, when I was studying, I would go to this market and go to the hostels just to get a you know, view of this hidden world and see um, how are people navigating the city, making sense of their own identity and sense of belonging. Just because, you know, as a white South African, I felt like this is not something I had access to. It's not something I understood. And I wanted to see the world from a different perspective. I guess it was through this, this interest and exposure that I went on to study anthropology. I wanted to understand not just the language, but the way that semiotics and body language and music and dance played out here. I did my honors degree based on, on the Zulu market and how, for example, you could find these handcrafted car tire shoes. So literally people would go and take car tires, cut them up, and decorate them with these fake logos. So you could get like Nike branded car tire shoes, which was quite cool. It's just always been this, I don't know, just this kind of exploration of the space and trying to make sense of it. And from an anthropological perspective, it was just really interesting to see uh, different expressions of identity. And of course, um, looking at the statistics, 10 million people speak Zulu. And with 95% of them living in South Africa, it's one of the 11 official languages of South Africa. So um, 11 languages is already a lot. So it would be understandable if you hadn't had any contact specifically with Zulu, but now I understand that it grew out of your experience in Johannesburg growing up. Yes, I mean, um, so I'm, I'm actually Afrikaans. I was raised Afrikaans. It's the first language I learned to speak and my family is Afrikaans. I also married an Afrikaans person, so I've always had this a little bit of an identity crisis when it comes to that because I've never really felt that I can relate or connect to that side of my heritage, I guess. But 
the Zulu language and and forms of expression, it's you know the music and all of it that went with it, just it it felt a lot more familiar. So the next thing I wanted to ask you about is you mentioned that you worked with a Spanish bank applying the DALA framework to a project they had. Could you tell us about how that unfolded? Yes. So this was actually through a strategic foresight company based in Spain. Um, I was contracted to work with them on this project for the Spanish bank. What this company does is they use artificial intelligence to gather a ton of online content. So, uh, you know, their team would go online, search for articles or academic papers or online conversations and insert it into this tool. And then this tool would go and filter through all of the information and extract certain common themes or patterns that were coming out of this. And what the team then did is look at those themes and the relating content to try and make sense of the narratives. So for example, for the Spanish bank, they were interested in understanding the concept of singlehood as it was expressed throughout the world and in different um, contexts and in different ways. And the AI tool extracted seven narratives of singlehood. So what we then did is look through the articles, contextualize it, develop these stories. But where Dela came in is in understanding how those conversations were coming about. So asking the different questions about what is changing, what do we see emerging, um, what feels familiar or seems strange about how this is adapting and how do we make sense of it both on a human level, but also in cultural context and in terms of individual stories. So the DELA tool became a way for us to just tell those uh, stories beyond just what the AI found or what the themes are maybe saying. And did they come to you knowing about the DELA framework or did you? they come to you as a futurist and then you explained that you would like to use this new system? So the way it happened is um, this, this futures company, they hosted a global foresight summit at the beginning of the lockdown last year. I can't believe it's already been a year, but they hosted this massive event with so many futurists speaking helping make sense of what was happening and what we can kind of anticipate um, over the next year. And that is where I came into contact with the, the person who runs this company. And he saw potential in the DELA framework. I think I, sh I shared it on, on LinkedIn and he was interested to develop it further and apply it. And that was the first time we actually put it into action. So he saw the potential of using it to be a, a storytelling technique. I, at the time, did not know how to make sense of it just yet, so that gave it some direction. Um, and he just saw the potential to apply it in this project with the Spanish bank. One more thing I wanted to ask you about Isizulu is, do you speak it? Yes and no. So, <laughs> um, when, when I was living in Joburg, I was exposed to it a lot more, just hearing it. My friends spoke the language. I listened to the music and that's actually how I started learning it is just listening to Zulu music and asking my friends to um, not just translate it, but help me make sense of, you know, the different sayings or proverbs or things that were coming out of this music. And after school, I, I went on to study anthropology, but one of my majors was Zulu language and culture. So I have a formal training in it, but 
since moving to Cape Town, where Zulu is not um, that common, it has been quite difficult to remember all the vocab and just have that confidence to speak it more often. How can your work help businesses look at data in a fresh way? I, I don't want to take credit uh, for the exciting and interesting things that people are doing with data. So I'd rather maybe make some suggestions. For example, Nora Bateson, she has developed this concept of warm data. And um, also Dave Snowden looks at rich and thick data. Um, so back when I was working for this marketing agency, um, I think it was in 2016, we organized with one of our clients, they're a big alcohol brand. They usually would come to this company to have focus groups or have us conduct in-depth interviews or go into field and talk to people. And I kind of just came up with this crazy idea of maybe just shaking things up. And instead of having people come to the office and sitting in this clinical environment, why not take the client out into the real world to see how things play out? You know, seeing people in context, understanding what's important to them, being part of that moment and not just extracting it um, and confining their findings to whatever their interpretations might be. So what we did is we organized with Johnny Clegg, um, the anthropologist and musician, to take the management team of this company to a migrant hostel, uh, to Denver Hostel. There was a big dance event taking place. So dance teams were competing with one another and putting on this big performance, which they, they tend to do every year before they um, head back to KwaZulu-Natal to spend time with their families over the December break. So we took them to the space, which none of them had ever been to. And uh, some of them even were not from South Africa. So they, they were very much out of their comfort zone and didn't know what to expect. We arrived at this hostel and it was almost like a sea of people flooding into this brick building. And you don't know what's on the other side. It's very uncertain, but you can feel the, the energy and the excitement as people were moving in. And you kind of just went with the flow walking down the stairs into, I don't know where we were going, we suddenly then emerged into what looked like a courtyard, but almost like a coliseum. So it was a few stories high, all four walls, you had balconies and people were just hanging over these balconies, cheering, watching the dances. You could hear the clapping and um, people singing and chanting and uh, the dancers stamping. It, it was Incredible. I don't even know how, how else to explain it. Uh, I guess it's something you need to experience for yourself to really understand what it feels like. So we had, we had this team of managers <laughs> sitting watching this performance, trying to decode what the movements meant. They didn't know what the language was about. There were you know people in the audience obviously recognizing that we were not from this world, wanting to interact with us, um, talk to us, share their stories. Um, so it was a very organic way of interacting with people that this client claims to want to serve, they saw a totally different side of how their supposed consumers live and uh, what's important to them. So what came out of this was a whole new view of this world, but also different ideas for you know product innovation or how to communicate with this audience. 
And even just understanding how this hostel is a connection between the city and the homestead, if they wanted to reach an audience that is not, you know, connected through technology, so people in the rural areas who don't have smartphones or don't have Wi-Fi, how do you access them? They realize that with these migrant workers in the hostel, you could introduce a trend to them and they would then transport it back home. So there were just so many interesting things that you could not even imagine or calculate that came out of capturing data in this way. Do you want to share another case study from your work in the remaining time we have? When I was doing future studies, one of my lecturers was Sarah Babb, and we continued our conversation after I even graduated. We were keen to collaborate on something just because, it, you know, coincidentally, she has a background in sociology and mine is in anthropology. So it just seemed that we were speaking the same language. It only made sense to keep talking. So what we've done is we've developed a leadership program where we take organizations through a process of firstly diagnosing the internal issues and also identifying their team's orientations towards the future. And then we help them tackle the mind traps that might prevent them from reaching their goals or creating internal change or understanding the context in which they operate. So it's kind of this interactive journey that we take them on. We called it Embark because each of the letters, again, like Della, each letter stands for something. It represents a different phase in the process. And it comes with its own set of, I guess you could call it recipes and tools and tasks that we give them. So for example, it, the, the process starts off with framing the problem. So knowing exactly what it is you're addressing and situating this issue in context. So understanding what are the conditions that are creating this problem and what are those forces of change that contribute to it. Uh, we then go on to develop different scenarios of possible futures for this problem. So this includes the best and worst case scenarios. We then challenge the team to debate with one another, uh, trying to see the problem from different angles and maybe changing the way that they think about it. We then ask them to go and gather real-world examples, so looking for relevant case studies of similar issues that have played out, uh, what are the things that we could learn or experiment in a way that's, that's relevant to this, this identified problem. Uh, we then think, you know, we reflect on the journey that the team has gone through and think about what still needs to be done. So it's almost like an internal reflection of how you've progressed or changed um, and taking a step back at the same time, looking at it objectively. And then finally, putting in place a tangible plan of action. So setting out those milestones and embedding your new practices and mindsets to help you resolve the problem. So it's an acronym, EMBARK, you said, E-M-B-A-R-K. EMBARK stands for Explore, Map, Breakthrough, Act, Reflect, and Kickstart. It sounds, uh, reminds me of how Suai Inyatola was talking about work that he's doing with organizations. And I mean, it seems like a really concrete way for futurists <laughs> to, to interact and help shape, help, help bring actually their work proactively into the world. Yes, for sure. And I think it's also inspired by uh, Sir Hale's, you know, use of metaphors and understanding how language 
shapes the way that you experience the world. So again, embark, it, it speaks to that idea of being on a journey. It's a process. There's no right or wrong way of doing it. You don't always have a map, uh, but you kind of figure it out as you go. Yeah, the journey is the creation. Yes. Just the last thing, uh, speaking of Zulu, I've been playing around with this idea of developing, I guess, a Zulu approach to uh, features and foresight. And there was one word that kind of stuck out to me. It's also from a song, of course. The word is pelamanga, which is, it's a made up word, but if you translate it, it means the end of lies or the beginning of truth. So it would be quite cool to see what comes out of that. So you have a, a network of Zulu friends and colleagues that support you with understanding and grasping the full depth of the terms you're using. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's hopefully a way that I can show my respect and give thanks to the people who helped me, um, you know, see my own biases and assumptions and help me just make sense of the world. Yeah, it's really the gift of South Africa is that even though it has this really difficult history, it's it's got so much potential in it for being a, sort of a flagship cultural integration for the rest of the world to show what I can be so. done. Well, your work seems to be pointing in that direction. So I wish you all the best with it. And Thank you. Keep on going. <laughs> keep, keep putting out your fantastic ideas and I'll be following you. And I hope our listeners will as well. Thank you. This is amazing. I love the conversation. To learn more about Marguerite's publications and work, go to www.omniology.co.za. That's www.omniology.co.za. And you can follow her on LinkedIn under Marguerite Kutzia. That's M-A-R G-U-E-R-I-T-E-C-O-E-T-Z-E-E. To learn more about the Berlin School's Executive MBA in Creative Leadership and our online programs, go to berlin-school.com. This has been Rose Merrill from the Berlin School. Thanks for listening.